0: Hello everybody, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager. This is episode 76. I sat on it for a while because I wanted to, I guess, see if the plane would land in a certain direction. And I guess the plane didn't land in the direction that I would have hoped. So I'm going to go ahead and release this podcast now. Well, what started out as what I would have thought would have been a conversation about COVID in a daycare center. Ended up being a fascinating conversation about something really horrible, which is a homeless problem in this country, the likes of which we've never seen. I think for the last 20 years, if not longer, we've been talking around the same issue ...again and again and again. Which essentially boils down to... ...our country doesn't really... ...know how to exist in a geopolitical state... ...without the possibility of small independent farms. I also think that we don't basically want to be a country... In terms of the United States of America. I I really don't. And I don't know how else to say that. So I'm just going to come out and say it. I had a very fascinating conversation with Cheryl Ring. Who is an attorney. In Chicago, Illinois. And I want you to listen to the entire podcast. Because we are going to have a serious problem in this country very 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 soon if we don't already have it now there was actually one thing that she said that I want to say right now that is each state since the year 2000 has evicted more people than Europe as a whole so in other words in the uh, example she gave Rhode Island has evicted more people in one year than Europe did in the whole of time since 2000, which that's amazing. So essentially we've had this homeless crisis uh, going on for a long time in this country, and I think COVID is going to bring it to a head. And also, the I guess the main reason I didn't release this podcast sooner was because I had thought that Congress would somehow come to its senses or do the expedient thing and and you know do the $2000 cash payments to most Americans which apparently they're not going to do. Now, why would I why would I say that? Because the plain fact is that you're going to have to have somebody cover rent for an awful lot of people in this country Very, very soon. Um, With that said, this is episode 76 of the History Voyager. And I would just like to say that I'm having a good time, and I hope you are too. And also, thank you for listening to this podcast. There are, of course, a zillion podcasts out there, and thank you very, very much for listening to mine. Hello, everybody. This is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager. This is episode 76 of the History Voyager. I'm here with Cheryl Ring, who is an attorney, and we are going to have a fascinating conversation. I'm almost certain. So, you deal with tenants, do you not?
1: First of all, thank you so much for having me. And yes, I do. That That, that is part of my practice, is tenants' okay. rights.
0: And you also, there was a court case. The whole reason... I wanted to do this is there was a specific court case I wanted to talk about. that I saw you tweet about uh, a few days ago, it had to do with a I think a daycare center and some COVID.
1: Yes. Um, so I can't talk too much about ongoing litigation, but what I can tell you is that as far as the, as the pandemic has progressed, what I've been seeing a lot of is a number of people in sort of unequal relationships, any landlord-tenant, daycare provider, and family, um, taking advantage of those unequal relationships. Um, this particular instance, um, I, I have a client, and their their cli- and my my client's child was repeatedly exposed to COVID, um, as, as, and and and. My my client's child, uh, my my client is non-white. My client's child is non-white, and the all the other families are white. And my client's family is the only one who was repeatedly and we hope not intentionally, but repeatedly ex- exposed to, to COVID. And this is something that I've seen over and over again as the pandemic has progressed. There is a disparity. Um, there is a disparity in how people of color are being treated relative to how white people are being treated in all areas of business. And what we've been seeing is um, the the pandemic is really exposing the fault lines in our society, racial lines um, in terms of racial privilege, um, gender privilege, um, privilege in gender identity, uh, disability, all of these fault lines are being exposed and People in positions of authority are using them to their advantage, to the detriment of people who do not have those privileges. And it really is incredibly problematic. I have
0: noticed something that I don't even know how to say it right. But what I've noticed is a gap in, I want to say, normally, if this were any other aspect of the world, I would say recognition. Like there seems to be a gap in people recognizing that this is real or that this is not just real, but something that's not a hoax or something that's not, you know what I'm saying? And it seems to be a semi-permanent thing.
1: I I mean, I, I had a client who died of COVID earlier this year, and the response from opposing counsel was to file a motion for sanctions. Um, essentially saying that the, the the death of my client was something I was attempting to use for gain in the lawsuit um, there it we are seeing this these kinds of fault lines that I talked about um, sur- passing through all areas of society and the courts are no different um, for, to give you another example, um, th- there is this belief that there's an eviction moratorium in place as a result of the CDC me- uh, memorandum from a, a, a few months ago. But what's actually going on is in order to gain the protection of the CDC uh, moratorium, you have to fill out some forms. They're not that hard, but a lot of people don't know how to fill out legal forms without legal assistance. Legal assistance agencies are overwhelmed right now. and a lot of, uh, and as a result, a lot of tenants are going into court without that protection. And worse than that, a lot of judges I've seen are simply ignoring it. They are simply saying that they do not believe that the CDC has this kind of authority, so they are ignoring it. Or you are seeing landlords going to other means, exercising self-help, changing the locks, which is illegal in every state. Um, Or worse, they are making up allegations of abuse or violence and trying to get tenants out through orders of protection and abusing that system because that court system is still open. Um, And so what you're seeing is a massive load on certain court systems that weren't designed to take that. Um, We we talk about the the guardrails of our system, as it were, and there's been a lot of talk over the last four years about how the guardrails of our system have held or are holding. They really haven't. If you look at how the judiciary has handled just this year as 40 million people now face eviction and homelessness. And what we're seeing is that in reality, the judiciary in particular was very ill-equipped for this. And as a result, all of those fault lines, um, and this is something I've, Spoken about with a, with with some other people, all those other fa- all those fault lines that that people who do my line of work have been warning about for several years now are coming into sharp relief. And uh, the eviction crisis that we've been talking about over the last few weeks—forty million people facing eviction—this is not a new thing. This is not something that we are first realizing now. The United States, every year in the twenty-first century, has evicted more people than all of mainland Europe combined. Every state. Every individual state in the United States has evicted more people in the 21st century than all of is mainland that, Europe combined.
0: I'm sorry, we I don't mean to interrupt States. this amazingly fascinating point. Is that now per year, like the U.S. is evicting more people in 2019 than mainland Europe did in 2019? Or is that...
1: More than that. So every year in the 21st century, the United States has evicted over a million people. Mainland Europe hasn't evicted a million people in the 21st century yet. That's how disparate we look at our systems. Um, So when I say that every single state in the United States evicts more people per year than mainland Europe does, what I mean is that the state of Rhode Island in 2019 evicted more people than Europe did. And if you think about wow. how how deeply disparate that is, you realize that this that this this was always going to happen as soon as a crisis of this magnitude right. hit us. And the reality is that because of who the eviction crisis impacts, talking about Black and Brown families, specifically grand families and Black and Brown women, we're talking about disabled people. And you're talking about queer people. Those people in that order are who the eviction crisis has been impacting in the 21st century. But those are not people who are at the top of the privilege pyramid in our society. And the result is, we ignore it. What I'd like to challenge every one of your listeners to do, um, and when I do interviews, this is something that I say often because this really does change how you look at American society. What I'd like to challenge all of your listeners to do is once... Once they're vaccinated, once courts are reopened, go into any eviction courtroom in a court in the courthouse closest to you. And just spend an hour there, just an hour. And what you're going to see is three things. Number one, you're going to see landlords who are overwhelmingly white, always represented by counsel. You're going to see tenants who are overwhelmingly not white. Rarely represented by counsel because in the United States, there is no right. There's no what's called civil Gideon. There is no right to an attorney in a civil case and evictions are a civil case. And then you're going to see overwhelmingly orders of possession entered first time in court against tenants who don't understand what's going on because they don't have legal representation. And in the United States, three quarters of eviction cases end with an order of possession in favor of the of the landlord on the first time you're in court. And oftentimes tenants don't understand what it is they're agreeing to because they don't have a lawyer there. And that's so that's what I challenge all of your listeners to do. Go to an, or go to an eviction courtroom and just sit okay. there and observe. And when you realize that that's something that we have been doing as a country for year after year after year, this was always only a matter of time. Can
0: I ask you a question? Uh, well, not a question. Well, yeah, okay, a question. But I'm going to ask this question by first telling you a story. Um, About three years ago, I was fortunate enough to go on vacation in the fall, in the late summer, early fall. And the vacation was I went on a cruise in Canada, okay? And so to do that, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, right? So I flew up to Boston. No, I flew to New Jersey. And we would take this like a cruise through uh, the uh, the Northeast and Atlantic Canada. And what you noticed was every stop we took, every town you went to, they all said there are these apartments. They call them five over ones. You know what a five over one apartment is? Like a five floor
1: I, yeah, I, five I, I, floors
0: I, over yes. and apart over a garage okay what you noticed was that every town you went to they all said yeah this we revitalized quote-unquote this town this community and we put in these brand new apartments and everywhere you went every single town i went to they all thought that these five over ones were totally unique <laughs> That's when I realized it. that's when I realized that they weren't unique, that this was the dominant architecture and the dominant, I guess, modality was to tear down what had been there before and to put something else up. And I don't know, the way I say it is, in this country, we got into this idea that your city could be a theme park. Right, And I think we're seeing that now. That first of all, we got into this thought that it was a theme park. And second, that maybe that was a stupid idea. Right? You see what I'm saying? I do, but I think it actually predates okay. that.
1: Um Let, let sure. me explain what I mean by that. In... So uh, I don't know if you've ever read a book called *The Color of Law*. It's by Richard Rothstein, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Um, and if you'd like some more information about the story I'm about to tell, I think it's a. a I think you and your your listeners should should read that book. Um, but one of the things that that Rothstein writes about is something that I, I've personally studied both through the cases that I've had and my own personal research. A lot of what we consider to be, quote unquote, slums, ghettos in inner cities were created by the United States government. And what I mean by that is this. During the first and second world wars, there was a lot of fast temporary housing built for soldiers and factory workers. right? And then after the wars ended, the United States government had this great idea for a con game. And this was particularly those civil servants who were in favor of segregation and wanted to ensure that racial integration would never happen. So what they did was, in that time, they started selling homeownership to white families through the GI Bill after they came back from World War II, right? And then they started moving black families into the temporary housing that the white families and the white factory workers had left behind. But of course, this housing that they were moving the black and brown families into was never designed for long-term use. It was short-term, temporary housing, which is why it looks so utilitarian. And it was designed to last for two decades, three at most, for war purposes. But once you start moving black and brown families into these buildings, now you can start blaming their disrepair on the occupants. Now, low-income housing is undesirable because of the people who live there instead of the truth. And the truth is, they were set up. Public housing became equated with low quality, not because of the people who live in public housing, but because they were sold a bill of goods, because they were put in housing that was designed to fall apart around them. And so gentrification happened as a a result because the, at this point, governments are saying, well, we have to get rid of the, these dilapidated buildings and the people who live there. So it's not just that we think of cities as amusement parks. It's that we sold to society this lie that people who live in slums lower the value of housing, when in reality, we built slums for the purpose of scapegoating an entire group of people when it had never had anything to do with them in the first place. And it was racism by our own government that created the lie in the first place. Well,
0: right. And I think maybe one of the, I mean, I don't know right off, but I think one of the insidious problems here is that when you say the government, when we say the word the government, we might not actually be talking about the same people. Like you might have a working generation people, a working generation of different people, Right. So, yes. you know, it's like we are
1: So, for example, you're talking about the Federal Housing Administration. Um, the, the, you're talking about the Federal Housing Administration, which at the time was responsible... To, uh, it now has the same in, the initials as the Fair Housing Act, which can be confusing, but at the time they were responsible for ensuring loans, um, placing people. This was back in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but you're talking about civil servants... In administrations that we otherwise think of as fairly progressive. The Eisenhower administration, for example, we think of as very progressive. They created the interstate housing system. It also worked tirelessly to keep Black and Brown people out of federal housing subsidy programs. Um, so, this is a very long standing problem from administrations of both parties that worked to create a basically worked to create a long con when it comes to housing policy. And we as a society have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And so now we look at gentrification as a good thing because we're destroying distressed buildings when we're not realizing the people who are living in these distressed buildings were put there so as to deprive them of generational wealth and blame them for the distress in those buildings when the buildings were obsolete before well, they and moved and the other
0: in. thing, I mean, you live in Chicago, I don't know where in Chicago you live but I live in metro Atlanta and the thing that you saw that you could see with your own eyes towards the end of the pan towards the right before the pandemic and really for the first for the last few years was you weren't even quote unquote gentrifying what you would call slums in the end there you weren't even gentrifying what you would call slums you were actually tearing out you know middle-class housing right detached brick middle-class houses and you were putting up these apartments which over the long haul i now believe was just totally asinine and stupid right
1: (laughs) well part of yes and no and let me explain what i mean by that gentrification as a process we, we lie to ourselves as a society and say that gentrification is about revitalizing distressed areas, but it was never about that. Gentrification, if we're being honest, is always about moving, quote moving quote unquote, undesirable people out of areas and bringing more desirable people into those areas. And that was why the lie of the... Of, the idea that public housing is made bad by the people who live in it. That's why that lie was so powerful, because it justified that. Once you blame reduced property values or the damaged property on the residents instead of the people who built the property, once you buy that lie, anything that displaces those quote-unquote bad people becomes acceptable. And that's, that's what leads to what you were just talking about with displacing single-family homes. Now, here is the other thing. Okay multifamily residential housing gets a bad rap in this country and it shouldn't. The reality is that zoning laws that were created in this country were actually not created for for the purpose of keeping factories away from houses. That was, again, the lie it was sold on. The reason why we have zoning that separates single-family homes from apartment buildings is because historically, white people tend to buy houses and black people live in apartment buildings and that was a scheme that was created in the 1910s and 1920s to make sure that we kept segregation. George Wallace's George Wallace's famous speech about segregation now segregation forever that was derived from a speech that he gave about zoning laws. This is this is something where he he was adopting the reasoning for okay. zoning in the first place. Why does this matter? Because the reality is, if you are going to be talking about housing as a guarantee, housing as a human right, which I firmly believe it is, there's two ways you have to address this. The first way is you have to allow for everyone to have access to generational wealth. That is never going to happen so long as you are allowing white people to access home ownership and no one else to access homeownership. And that is essentially what we've created in the United States, a two-tier system where white people can build generational wealth and black and brown people can't, where straight people can access generational wealth and queer people can't. And that's because until the Fair Housing Act was passed, it was essentially impossible for black and brown people to access loans and mortgages to buy houses. And even after the Fair Housing Act was passed, the repeal of Glass-Steagall allowed for predatory loans and reverse redlining to to turn um, bank loans into a means by which banks could make money, and the and those okay. loans were designed to fail.
0: Let me. Hold.
1: But also, low income housing is very rarely going to be in the form of single family right. homes. Now, we can talk about how we can take the single, there are 16 million vacant single family homes in the United States at any given time as a result of the foreclosure crisis. But the reality is that if we're going to be talking about low income housing, we need to end this idea of luxury apartments and start building apartments that are accessible to everyone. And part of that means we need to end this idea of having cul-de-sacs we need to end the cul-de-sac culture we need to make sure that multi-family residential housing can live next to a single family home those are those things can exist and Let must me, exist. can
0: i ask you a okay let's you you touched on a lot of things there and i want to back you up just a minute and i want to talk i believe i know what the glass seagull act is okay but i'm i'm not entirely certain But I'm sure I have listeners who don't know what that is. So would you mind, uh, in your own words, just a little bit explaining what the Glass-Steagall Act is? And then I had uh, a couple more questions for you.
1: So the Glass-Steagall Act was the most important reform to come out of the housing crisis that led to the Great Depression um, and the stock market crash of 1929. Um. So in the 1920s, what was called the Roaring 20s was caused by a housing bubble, Wall Street speculation on loans secured by real property. Sounds very familiar now, having been on the other side of the housing crisis. And what the Glass-Steagall Act did, it was pretty short by uh, by, by con- congressional standards, 30 something pages long. It essentially said that a bank that makes that makes mortgage loans, loans secured by real property, cannot also securitize those loans. In other words, you can either be an investment bank or you can be a lending bank, but you can't do both. And here's why that's important. After the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, banks realized, even though we are prohibited now from discriminating against black and brown families, we can still discriminate against them and make a shit ton of money. I'm not saying for work. And... So. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. So here is what the, uh, here's what the banks decided to do. They repealed the Clinton... They, they, they lobbied the Clinton administration to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act, and that allowed them to engage in what is called reverse redlining. Redlining was a process by which banks would encircle an area on a map in red literally redlining, to say this is a neighborhood where majority Black families live. We are not going to rent to those people. We're not going to lend to those people, rather. Reverse redlining was kind of the opposite, but worse. Banks would find these areas where majority Black or brown families lived, and they would issue them loans that were designed to fail. Now, you and your listeners are probably thinking, well, why would a bank make a loan that they knew was going to default? Well, that's where the securitization comes because in. There,
0: there was a, so let's say you're a I, You don't know this about me, but I used to work at a small paper, and I accidentally ended up covering what later became the housing bubble way before anybody, I, not to brag right. or anything, I'm just telling you a, a, a historical fact. I was the first person that I was aware of that was telling people there's a problem coming over the hill, and that problem ended up being the crash of 2008. <laughs>
1: Yes, you, you, and you were exactly right. And, but what ha- and what happened was banks were issuing these loans and what they would do is they'd issue the loans, they'd go to an insurance company like AIG and they'd say, we are, this is a great loan, insure it for us. And so what happens is then they sell the loan to a, an investor, say Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers. So now on a defaulted loan, the bank is not just getting paid once like they do if you pay it back. They're getting paid four or five times. So let's say that I issue a loan that I know is going to fail. And I say, okay, here, here Ben, here's your loan for $400,000. What you don't know is I put in this fine print, this predatory term, and, and I still see these loans every day in my practice. I had, um, I'll give you an example of these clauses in a few minutes after, after I finish explaining this. But um, so I, I give you this loan for $400,000 with a predatory term. Then you default on it. Well, now I get the money from the insurance company that pays it out in full after I've already gotten the payments from you and the payments from the investor. So I've gotten paid three times on a loan that you never paid back. Whereas if you just paid it it back in full, I only get paid once. So banks realized they could make more money off of black and brown families by exploiting them and giving them loans they knew would fail. And I'll give you some examples of those clauses now. Because a lot of the questions I get are, well, didn't those people just stop paying? Here are some examples of some clauses that I found in, in these loans. Just in the last six months, I saw a loan that said that for every dollar you pay over the minimum payment, you have to pay six months of interest. I saw a loan that said that if you rent out the house at any point, you have to pay all of the rent you collect to the bank as along with your monthly payments. I saw a loan that said that if you become sick or terminally ill, it is a default, even if you are current on your payments. These are all clauses that banks put into loans for black and brown borrowers with the idea that they wanted the loans to fail so they could get paid multiple times and make a profit. And so what happened was when we bailed out the banks with TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and we paid the banks... Value for those loans, the banks got paid in full. AIG went under, Bear Stearns went under, but the banks got paid in full. And so, what ended up happening was the housing crisis was a cash transfer, was a a value transfer on an on average of fifty thousand dollars from every black and brown person in the United States to the ten largest banks in the United States. That is what the housing crisis was. At the end of the housing crisis. Black America had lost 50% of its wealth. The 10 largest banks in the country had gained billions of dollars. The average white family was 12% wealthier. The average black family was 50% I rem- poorer. I'm that is, what, that is yeah. what the housing crisis really I remember,
0: was. and actually people remember this for me. <laughs> I am renowned among my friends. Uh, for going to a party in about 2008 and saying that the, the reality of the situation is that a house ought to cost a certain amount of money. If you have anything over that, you don't actually have a place to sleep. You have an investment vehicle. And, <laughs> yes. and I remember, like, I, I used to live in Savannah. And Savannah when you Savannah Georgia when you go there you see it in up close and personal like it, you see the horrors of what gentrification actually could be where you actually have you have this city that doesn't have any real permanent residents or if they are permanent residents they're not they're not really of there you know what i'm saying like they don't have deep roots in the community yes Right. So if anything goes wrong, they can leave like they just up and leave. You know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying?
1: Yes. But so so, and the other problem that you have when you have created this. And we really do have a two tiered system in the United States between people who can access generational wealth and people who can't. And it is split along racial and It is basically split along racial lines and upon straight versus queer lines. And the biggest issue with that is that explains, and this is why I do this kind of work, why I believe housing is the the most fundamental human right. You want to talk about why people have jobs and people don't have jobs. You want to talk about why some people can go to college and others can't. You want to talk about how some people get scholarships and others don't. Why some people go to really good public schools and some people have crappy schools. It all comes back to housing. Schools are paid for by property taxes. If you live in an area where most of the housing is projects that were built by the federal government as temporary military housing and converted you're not going to have the same quality school as someone who lives in a cul-de-sac in the suburbs. You are just not in a property tax funded system and that's not okay. If you live in a if you live in a city where public transportation is funded by property taxes, You're not going to have the same quality public transportation as people in the suburbs. And that's not okay. If you can't get your kids into college because you don't own a home, so you don't have the equity to send your kid to college, or they don't go to a school that's good enough to get your kid into a college, they're not going to be able to make enough money in their career to send their kids to college and on and on and on. It all comes back to housing. And so what we did, what we did in the first half of the 20th century, when we created this two-tier system... And I say we because these were policy choices that we, through our government, made as a way of ensuring that segregation would remain forever. What we did was we made these choices, and the results have allowed us to pat ourselves on the back for a lie that we supposedly conquered as the, the... Case law for the 13th Amendment says the badges and incidences of slavery. We can pat ourselves on the back and say that racism is a thing of the past when in reality, all we did was codify it. And the problem is that the longer we pat ourselves on the back for that lie, the longer good people are suffering because of choices that the American government made, and that, that the reality is, until we face that, until we start making real effort to fix that, we are going to have the same problem over and over again. We talk, you talk about police violence, police brutality. That comes from housing rights also, because the because if you look at who makes up police departments, it is overwhelmingly people from outside those communities. Because of how education the education system works, because the education system is funded by property taxes, it all comes back to housing, all of it. And so, there, there is not a single area in our society that is not impacted by these housing policies, these housing policy choices. Not a single. Now, let me one. ask you
0: this, because you brought up you brought up the police. I have a question, because I have this thought i live in this area where in the last i don't know 20 years right there's been these uh new towns that have come up these brand new towns have been built created and almost to a to a town they always have these private police forces right now it turns out that you can't apply to be a policeman in person in these towns unless you go all the way up to New Jersey which is where the headquarters of these the companies that run these police forces are and here's the thought that i keep having right and it's a thought is one of the reasons why we have police violence because the people that are policing are not necessarily even from the same state if you will
1: I, I I think that's part of it. But um as someone who has handled a lot of civil rights cases, I, I, I have thoughts on the on the issue of especially municipal policing. I, I I am by no means an expert in this area, but I do but I do have some thoughts as somebody who has handled civil rights cases, who has um, who has handled a lot of cases of, of police violence. Um I think there are three main causes. Number one, it is very much police culture. The first municipal police departments were created to be slave patrols. And I genuinely believe that you cannot have an entity created for not just a racist purpose, but an overtly genocidal purpose, and then expected to not retain some character of that racism into its subsequent iterations. And it's one of the reasons I personally am a police abolitionist. I think that the entire design, when you pattern your design after slave patrols, you're going to have latter day slave patrols. It may not be, it may, it may not call themselves that anymore. It may not be the ostensible purpose, but that is what they're still doing. That's the first issue. Second, perp- second reason goes back to housing, as I said before, but not for the reason you might think. Um, yes, police are funded by the local, by your local um, property taxes in many communities. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize about their local police. In our modern society with for-profit prisons, for-profit prisons are among the largest funders of ensuring that tenants have as few rights as possible. Why would, would why would that be? Because the leading indicator for whether a young black man will be arrested during his lifetime is whether his mom was evicted. Yeah. The reason is that most black young black men get into crime to pay their mom's rent. That there, there is act. There are actually studies that prove that. And so the reality is, for profit prisons want evictions because it gives them a new crop of people to lock up. And so every time you see, for example, in, in Cook County, Illinois, right now we're debating whether or not to pass a new landlord tenant ordinance, and the for profit prison complex is one of the leading funders of the effort against it because they want a bunch, they want to be able to keep locking young kids up. And so the police departments are part of their goal is to lock people up in for-profit prisons. And so when you have this sort of incestuous relationship between housing and the police, when the police are not from your community, but they are paid to lock up people from your community that
0: is going to lead to the kind of racism that we see. I I don't even think I'm talking about people like from one town over. I actually think I'm talking about people from a whole nother part of the country or a whole nother state. Oh, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Um, And then the third goes to police training. Um, So for example, until recently, the Chicago police used a training manual that was from the 1950s and 60s. There's actually a consent decree that talked about that. Um, but that's why if, if you look at modern policing, it is inherently broken. I do not think you can reform a system with that many problems. But again, it goes, it goes back to housing. When you have a prison system that is based on monetizing black and brown bodies, it makes sense that you would be using the descendants of municipal slave patrols to replenish your supply of black and brown bodies. And that is essentially what we have done in the United States. So one again, it's one of the reasons why I got into this kind of legal work because when you stop an eviction, odds are you are not just saving that family's home in the short term. You are also reducing, you're reducing substantially the likelihood that the kids in that family are going to end up incarcerated. And we need to talk about the, the effects that generational poverty, that generations of institutional racism and institutionally enforced poverty have on families. And this is one of them. This is absolutely one of them.
0: Right. Um, okay. So. Wow. That's, that's a lot to talk about. Um, so put your thinking cap on or I guess your extrapolation cap, if you will. Uh, what, how do you think the pandemic is going to shape how we deal, how we think of and conceive and, and not just the pandemic, but the, after the pandemic, uh, of a, of a, of an eviction crisis or a housing crisis or, or whatever, because the thing I keep seeing, the thing I literally see every single day is I'm seeing people bunking up. You know what I'm saying like in my neighborhood I can see people I know they're they're bunking up you know and how is that yeah. going to impact not just them now but them later right or, or their kids later or what have you
1: <laughs> You know there's Oh and I, oh
0: wait a second so I forgot to throw in this fun fact I live in a predominantly, I'd call it a white or white adjacent neighborhood, right? So these aren't what you call black and brown folks, mostly. I'm seeing white people sleeping, with, living with other, you know what I'm saying? Like bunking up pandemic style.
1: <laughs> because I think what is happening is now, we have created this two-tier system. And so what's happening is, white people who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic privilege spectrum are now falling in prey to those same structures that we set up. And it was only a matter of time, really. Um, When you create a system that inherently stratifies wealth, eventually the stratifications are going to grow and and the number of people at the top is going to shrink. Um, And that's essentially what we're seeing. Insofar as what the pandemic is doing, I am the number of sex for rent demands I have seen from landlords has skyrocketed. The sex, sexual harassment claims have skyrocketed. Sexual assault by landlords has skyrocketed because it was never about sex; it was always about power. And right now, landlords have more power than the, than than the tenants, even more so than usual. Um, but I, what I'm seeing is beyond that, um, in a, in a couple of ways. I'm banks had moved on from reverse redlining black homeowners to now reverse redlining landlords in black and brown communities and reverse redlining white landlords in black and brown communities and giving them predatory loans because now they can make even more money off of foreclosing on multi-unit apartment buildings. And there's this myth out there that banks can't foreclose on everyone. Banks foreclosed on 10 million houses During the financial crisis, there are at any given time, according, depending on who you ask, between eight and 16 million vacant single family homes in the United States still from the financial crisis. That's more than enough to give that's two empty houses for every homeless person in the United States. And we did nothing about that. Um, So as much as people talk about the idea that 40 million people getting evicted will be some kind of inflection point. Unfortunately, I don't see it. And here's why. The people who are talking about real, needed reform—Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib—who are talking about the need not just to not, not to just uh, cancel evictions, but also cancel rent and, importantly, mortgages for homeowners and land, small landlords. Cancel the mortgages, also. Um, they are being told it's being called socialism or going too far. Here's the problem, though: if you just cancel evictions, through, say, the end of 2021, you'll just have a bunch of tenants who owe a massive amount of rent they can't pay back. And worse than that, you'll just be kicking the can down the road. Instead of having 40 million people evicted at the end of 2020, you'll evict 60 million at the end of 2021. Um, so I, we are at an inflection point where we can make one of two choices. We can realize this is what our housing system created Because it was always going to do this. This is what our housing system always was. And we can fundamentally revamp it. Make housing a human right. Guarantee aid for everyone facing eviction. Pay off everyone's past due rent. Pay off everyone's past due mortgages. Um, Guarantee government aid. Expand the number of Section 8 vouchers to everyone who needs one. The wait list for Section 8 vouchers in this country is two and a half years long. If we did those things, we could forestall the crisis. And you'll notice that as bad as Europe has gotten, even Italy was at the height of the pandemic earlier this year. And as the United Kingdom, which has the United Kingdom has the laxest housing laws in Europe, and they are the closest to us in terms of eviction laws, and even they are not facing a housing crisis to the extent we are, because they ha- even they have more protections than we do. Um, But mainland Europe is not seeing a housing crisis like we are as a result of the pandemic, even through the lockdowns. Canada is not seeing a housing crisis like we are, even through their own lockdowns. And the difference is they are either guaranteeing housing payments or guarantee or canceling rent and mortgages or both. And we are doing neither. And so what we are witnessing right now is the end result of the housing system we chose. So one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to say unfettered capitalism is fine. This is what we chose and we are okay with 40 million people on the street. And to put that in perspective, 40 million people would be about 12% of the entire 40 million population. It's
0: about is more than to say of California. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, it's
1: Yes, we are talking about putting the and it, we are talking about putting Basically, 12% of the entire U.S. population and on the street. When
0: you do that.
1: And that be a higher homelessness rate than most of okay. the Great Depression. That is how and, high we are talking. We're not talking about a 12% unemployment rate, a 12% homeless rate. And we, and, and we are seeing half of the country okay with that. That's the thing that terrifies me the most. As much as I want to think we will use this as an inflection point to change our policy, not enough people are scared by what. Two days
0: ago, two days ago, I released it yesterday. I had a fascinating conversation with a young man, who, uh, he he travels all over Georgia. He he he, uh, he registers people to vote all over Georgia, and he doesn't care what party you vote for. He's he's just registering you to vote. And the thing that he, we talked about was when you come out of metro Atlanta, of what I would consider metro Atlanta, right, you're talking about a totally different education system, like a completely different education system. And the thing that I came away from our conversation was I don't think when, when we say that half the country is OK with X and half the country is OK with Y. I don't think half the country has all the information. Not only that, I don't think half the country has the the tools to acquire the information. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I do. I think
1: where I slightly disagree with you is this. American culture is run on individualism, rugged individualism. If you work hard enough, you'll get yours, Right. That your success or failure is based on how hard you work. And the reality is, rugged individualism to that degree is and has always been a myth. We are very much a community. Every country is. Every society is. Any success that one of us has is Yes, it's partly due to our own hard work, but it's also because of people in our community, however big it is, who give their time or money or capital or emotional labor or something to make that success happen. There is, I can, I know that in my own practice, no case I win is possible just because of me. No case I, everything I do, my pra- my practice is only successful because of people in my community. Um, and so there, there is no such thing as. I did it all by myself. And the problem is, because we have this rugged individualism, we have internalized the lie that if you are poor, it is your fault. If you are homeless, it is your fault. And therefore, government help is a handout. And that's what I mean by half the country is okay with this. Not because they're okay with the idea of homelessness as that's fine and dandy. It's because they believe that if you work hard enough, you won't be homeless. When in reality, that has nothing to do. Well, with I it
0: wasn't.
1: With the I wasn't system. trying to
0: say that. I was agreeing with you, but I was adding context. I, I think. Oh yes. Rugged individualism is certainly a deal, and I can point you in the direction of people that believe that. But I really think that a lot of people in this country have no idea what forty million homeless people would look like, and I'm not even talking about. I'm talking about from a health perspective, from just a public health perspective, 40 million people out of a job or out of on the streets is going to impact not just them, but the people (laughs) in the houses. I mean, it's going to you're going to be into a spiral. You're going to get into a spiral and you're not going to be able to get out of it.
1: I mean, I, I, I was talking with someone the other day um, about what we can do to stop this. So again, as I mentioned this before, there are millions of vacant single-family homes that are bank-owned right now. And one of the best proposals I've seen is for the government to seize those those houses through eminent domain and use them to house families, basically give these families generational wealth by giving them homes Here. We'll give you this house. We'll fix it up to make it livable. You pay the property taxes, and now you have this house you can do with as you wish. The, the, it, the, it is a really good idea, but there are a lot of people who view that as theft from the bank. And that's what I mean by rugged individualism being toxic, right. that so long as you have people who are more concerned with making sure that the bank's property is protected than making sure that we don't have people on the street we're going to have people not just who don't understand, but also don't want to understand. And that's a problem also. Rugged ind- the, the cancer of rugged individualism is that we, ass- we assume that people are in a situation because of their own doing. And sometimes that's true, certainly, but oftentimes it's not. And even when it is, it doesn't mean you got a fair deal. And so what, what I encourage people to think about, especially now, is even if a person is down on their luck as a result of something they did, would they, were they treated the same way that every other person in that position would have been? And, I, and the reality is that not everyone in this country is treated the same. If you are a white, cis, straight male, you are treated completely differently than the rest of everyone. And if you are a white person of any stripe, you are treated better than everyone else. And that is just the way it is because that's how our laws are written. And so until we recognize that, as long as we worship at the altar of rugged individualism, we're going to look at 40 million people being homeless as no big deal. That's a problem. It isn't. This is not just an inflection point for our housing policy. It's an inflection point for our cultural values. Let me
0: ask you. I'm sorry. At I don't mean point, to interrupt. At some point. Let me ask you another question that keeps popping up in all these conversations I keep having with people all over the world, (laughs) because I feel like you could answer this question that everybody seems to have. Imagine that there's a vaccine and that in two vaccines, we can be inoculated against COVID and the whole world goes about its business, right? What happens if, for example, you have to have an address to have a vaccine, right? Like you have to have an address to have a job, you have to have an address to vote, right? What happens if you have to have an address to have a vaccine? What happens if you see what I'm saying? We'll see.
1: I I, I love that you're bringing up this question because so so on election night, um, I was doing so I, I was doing a um a uh, 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 an election show i i um i forget which one it was um but one of the things i brought up was how the eviction crisis has been weaponized politically because if one of the reasons why certain why certain government entities didn't want to address the eviction crisis is if people are getting evicted then they can't vote and because people who are evicted are more likely to be people of color and therefore more likely to vote for the democrat it is. It makes good political sense to not address the eviction crisis. Um, that I think is because it has been weaponized politically. The, the eviction crisis. I think that's going to. You're right to bring up that that's something that will play into the the vaccine. Who is going to get vaccinated is going to is going to impact. It's going to depend on on housing. But we're already seeing, I, I don't know if you saw the news reports on this, we're already seeing uh, people in the, the upper classes of American wealth offering as much as $25,000 to go to the front of the line for the vaccine. So I think you're, you're absolutely right that this is a problem. As far as what happens if this becomes, a, if, a, if an address is a requirement, the question is going to be how much our government is willing to step in to prevent a mass homelessness crisis. That at the end of the day, that's the answer to your question. Will the government care enough to stop 40 million people from being evicted? Or are they going to say that it's not the job of the government to do that? That is essentially the the only answer to your question, because everything and that's it's why I mentioned before that housing is the single most important human right there is everything depends on housing if you have a roof over your head you can get a job if you don't have a roof over your head you can't get a job if you have a roof over your head you can get health care if not you can't again and again and again that and that, that is just how we have structured our society So,
0: okay so getting back to and this isn't my question thank you for saying this is my question it's not it's the question of Literally, I'd say about seventy-five percent of the people I've talked to all over the world is what happens if you don't, you're not able to have herd immunity in this country because you have to have an address, you have to have an address to have the vaccine. Or here's another question that keeps popping. Here's another fact of my interviewing humans that keeps popping up. Um, we're missing people, America. Literally. There's like this epidemic under the epidemic of people like people will say, what happened to so and so or what happened to, to this person or that person or whatever. Yes. And I think you have answered the question that there that there is this homelessness situation that is right under the yes. surface that isn't going to get better on its own.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right, and and one of the, well, one of the 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 really frustrating things is, we are pretending it doesn't exist. We are seeing what what's happening is we're talking about the the homelessness crisis that will happen if the eviction moratorium is not extended past the 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 first of the year. We're already seeing landlords exercising self help, okay, demanding self-help, sex for self-help.
0: rent, filing. You said or- this to me in a DM on Twitter. Explain to me what you mean by self-help.
1: Basically, what we're seeing is landlords changing the locks on apartments without a court order, which is illegal in every state.
0: In high school, we had a saying: "It ain't illegal till you get caught."
1: <laughs> but but that's part of the problem, right? So let's say that um, let's say that you're a landlord um, and you change the locks. The law in every state allows your tenant to sue you. In many states, you can face criminal charges. But again, that takes time. Our laws are designed to be reactive, not proactive. Is
0: there a country? Hang on. So we, is, we, is there a country that is what we would call, how do you say it? Um, I want to say first world, but I don't want to say first world. Um, is, do we have a peer country that has proactive and not reactive laws?
1: Oh yes, in the housing in the housing area. I mean, I mentioned Europe before. Europe has many problems in many areas of its society, and I am not saying we should just copy Europe. But in many areas, Europe is still well ahead of us. I mean, so Canada is the same way. Again, they have their Canada has a lot of problems. They are not immune to institutional racism, but they handle a lot of things better than we do. Um, and what Canada and most EU countries did was a combination of some kind of basic income as well as proactive bans on eviction with some teeth to them. So for example, the pre- but also the pre-existing infrastructure was there. So in most of mainland Europe, the laws are set up so that You have to go several months before you can get an order of of possession against a tenant. There are government programs designed to pay the landlord rent for you. There are government programs designed to help the landlord pay his or her mortgage bill in the meantime. There are government programs designed to ensure that the person who is evicted has a place to live afterwards, even if it gets that far. And there are hoops to jump through. And if you try and exercise self-help, then... You, there's actual real teeth there that is and again, more immediate. In, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. You,
0: because when I hear self help, I think of, you know, exercising and eating vegetables. And when you say self help, you mean changing locks, things like that.
1: Correct. It is, it is unfortunately an industry, a legal industry term of art for um, when a landlord locks out a tenant illegally. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm um, just.
0: Clarifying English is a foreign language.
1: So (laughs) it it very much is. It very much is. But but yeah, the, the answer to your question is that every other major country in whether it's it's Europe I would exclude the United Kingdom because their laws are most similar to ours in terms of housing but even they provide more help to, more protection to tenants than we do in that in most of in most of the United Kingdom you can prevent being evicted by simply refusing to let the sheriff in the door um the the, the reality is that the United States is unique in the in the sheer lack of protection we give people for their homes. Um and, and part of that is because, unlike Europe and Canada, we have sold our our people on the idea of homeownership as an ideal. Um, whereas other countries view homeownership as just one kind of dwelling. Um your 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 home is is sacrosanct irrespective of how you possess it. But to kind of to put it in in a, a different light, how um, and use Illinois as an example, how fragile homeowner uh, your your home is. Um, in, in Illinois, your redemption period, in other words, the the amount of time you have to to pay off what you owe and avoid being evicted. In Illinois, it's five days. In for a, an eviction from an apartment you rent, it is seven months in a foreclosure that for a home that you own, and it's seven months from the date the lawsuit is filed, whereas the five days for an eviction expires before the lawsuit is filed. So, and Illinois is typical this way. So we have set up our entire system of housing to basically throw you out on the flip of a switch. Your, your housing is tenuous in the United States in a way it simply isn't anywhere else in the developed world.
0: Okay, and I, I you've made the argument with me that this was, and I mean, I saw this before, that this was literally something that was going to come along at any moment, you know, without whatever. Yes. Um, so, and you also don't actually think a lot of people are going to care that forty million people are, are homeless, and
1: Unf- we, see for for me, unfortunately, this is like the sequel to a bad movie. We saw this with the housing crisis back in two thousand eight, and you know very well how predictable that was, and we saw yeah. the, the the economy spiral out of control. And we saw that it happened due to a few bad actors in large banks. And what did we do as a society? We paid off the banks. One of the
0: problems and not that your problems that you illustrated for the last hour aren't significant and weren't significantly a part of the problem. But I, I honestly, from my perspective, see it as part of the problem is that we're a rapidly urbanizing society and there's a law of supply and demand here. And You know, it's when you go um, when you go visit where my dad's from, you pass by these towns that are, you know, these towns with structures in them that nobody wants to live there anymore. Right. Because the kids moved on or whatever. Right. And our our governor is incredibly conservative and, and, you know, whatever we can have. I can go ad nauseum about my feelings about him. But the one thing he does say is that until you get high-speed internet out into the rural communities, you're not going to solve a lot of problems. And I agree with that.
1: Yes. There's also your piece but, of the puzzle. And it's, I think, that, <laughs> I, I think there's, a, there's a big but on that. The because of how we treat the housing market it has never been supply and demand white flight was not about supply and demand white flight was about white people not wanting to live next to people of color um what you see now if if we had a true supply and demand free market you wouldn't have banks sitting on so many vacant houses i don't think people are moving to the city just because of supply and demand um, because you have so many, because, because the, 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 market itself doesn't work like that. You have all of these new, new luxury apartments getting built at record numbers, but they're only half full. Whereas you could make in theory more money off of affordable housing, but nobody wants to live next to affordable housing. So zoning laws are drafted to make sure that affordable housing isn't welcome in that community. I don't think this is just an economic issue of supply and demand. Are we urbanizing absolutely? But I think we have to go deeper than that. Why are we urbanizing? Who is urbanizing? And more importantly, who controls the supply of housing right now? Because if this was simply supply and demand, then right now there we would not you would not have half empty luxury apartment buildings in the city. You would have a bunch of middle class apartment buildings in the city and they would all be full. The reality is we are still building our housing infrastructure based on those same early 20th century racist tropes. And as long as we're doing that, this is what we're going to see. Um, There's a reason that gentrification doesn't allow for the original residents of that neighborhood to stay.
0: Okay. What's the, uh, what's the reason?
1: The reason is that those residents get priced out of that neighborhood on purpose. Gentrification is not just about rehabilitating an area. There are a lot of studies about how you can rehabilitate an area by investing in construction in that area without displacing the residents. Gentrification is about whitening an area, nothing more. That is all gentrification has ever been. And we need to stop this lie that distressed areas just need, uh, need gentrification because that's how they recover. No distressed areas need investment to ensure that the current residents in that area get to stay. They need to be. They they need access to the middle class in that neighborhood. They need. They don't need to be displaced from that neighborhood through their supposed salvation, and that's what we what we have been doing instead urbanization is happening in the sense that we have a bunch of white people moving into the city and displacing the residents who are there what we need is urbanization that allows for white people to move into cities without displacing the residents in those neighborhoods who are there that's what, what that's what we need because what we what we cannot allow to happen is another generation of white families pushing out everyone who they deem undesirable in that neighborhood. But that is part of what we're seeing. And honestly, the pandemic is essentially just it, accelerating that. We're, we're going to end up with It's exacerbating
0: it. And also the thing that I've been talking to a lot of people about on any side of this issue you can think of is there's a whole lot of people that, you know, I, I record a lot of people on Sunday night, right? And there's people who say after we record, you know, I have to go to, I have to get up and go to work in the morning or whatever. And then they'll say like, wait a minute, I'm doing my job from home. Why do I have to turn up at an office? And so that's, I think, what I'm afraid of is that it's not even going to be neighborhood by neighborhood in terms of the inequality, right? It's going to be house to house, right? You see what I'm saying? It's, it,
1: it. Yes. Oh, yes. And and I think what we're seeing, it, it already is. It, it, it already is. A, a great example right now is oh, yeah. condo buildings. Because condos typically house people from all socioeconomic backgrounds. And the disparities in condo buildings are gigantic right now. Um, all of a sudden, you have a family that can't afford to pay assessments. Next to a family where they're independently wealthy, uh, I I think that's a very good example of what you were what what you were
0: just describing. Yeah, and you even have like you have. You have these condos that, with benefit of hindsight, like this condo was so valuable. What did my dad? My dad actually had this amazing insight to this, that was amazing. He said the ultimate badge of wealth. I'm going to get this wrong, but he said like the ultimate badge of wealth it turns out was whether or not you could afford to pay $3,000 a month to live in an apartment. Because if you're paying $3,000 a month to live in an apartment, he says, you really don't need to live in that apartment (laughs) because if you, you know, exactly. (laughs) Yes. But,
1: but that's the thing. So when, when we, it's the divide between the, 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 Divide between the the, the 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 wealth stratifications that we've been talking about this entire time. That is a great example of that. And and what we're seeing with the pandemic is all of that exacerbated. Um, that's why you've seen every every person worth more than a billion dollars has gotten wealthier during the pandemic, and the rest of America has gotten poorer. Um, we are seeing another massive wealth transfer happening in real time. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, the, the reality is when a person loses their home, whether it's an apartment or whether it's a house, that's a loss of wealth because your apartment is your stability. You could, it, at the very least, it'll, it allows you to, to have food on the table. It, it allows you to buy things to put in the apartment. When you lose your apartment, you lose wealth. And so when you talk about 40 million people on the street, that's 40 million people who no longer have the ability to buy food, to shop in supermarkets, to buy furniture. That's 40 million people who now have essentially lost And that's everything. a
0: living, breathing, I mean, that's um, a huge living, breathing, walking, thinking health crisis. You're talking about cholera. You're talking about, um, let's see, cholera. You're talking about um, typhoid. You're talking about um,
1: and you're talking about a lot of kids, a exactly. lot of kids. And
0: uh, to me, at the end of the day, no matter what you think about rugged individualism or whatever, everybody understands cholera. <laughs> you know? I mean,
1: yeah, I, I would hope, but um in in my line of work, I have encountered a lot of people. Um, so, so for example, the line I get the most from landlords, I, I get it all the time, is the tenant can't be that bad off, they have a flat screen. There is always this attempt Do You know how to cheap a flat screen is? That's what I would just- say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you would be you would be amazed how often I see an attempt to justify making someone homeless because, well, they have a flat screen, so they have the ability, they really have the ability to pay, they're just choosing not to. I can count on one hand the number of people I have ever met, and I have done over well over a thousand eviction cases in my career. I can count on one hand the number of people who I would qualify as "quote unquote" professional tenants. It's a myth, like welfare queens. What is a myth.
0: professional tenant? That's not a term I've ever heard.
1: In, among landlords, they call professional tenant a person who moves into an apartment and doesn't pay rent by choice, even when they can afford it, and then gets evicted and then does it again. And the reality is our system, and the reason why they oppose moving to more landlord, moving to more tenant protections or moving to a more European system is they believe it will incentivize professional tenants. And I generally have a couple of comebacks to that. Number one, you're essentially saying that professional tenants should be homeless, and I'm, I am not okay with a society where we're saying, oh, you're a crook, therefore you should not have a home. That, that, that's not the kind of society I want to live in. But second, even if professional tenants were crooks and deserve to not have homes, there are very, very few of them. I have, I have never met anyone who thought, you know what would be a really great con? If I conned my landlord out of rent money so I could stay there a few months before getting evicted. The reality is our system is set up so that after you have an eviction on your credit, it never comes off. Seriously. In Illinois, for example, once an eviction goes on your credit, it goes on twice. First, when the case is initially filed. The second time when the order of possession is entered against you and it never comes off. It's not like a, a bankruptcy that comes off after seven years. It, it never comes off. And you're an, you're an automatic do not rent whenever anyone rents rent your credit or your background. And so what that does is it creates a permanent underclass of people, again, along racial lines, a a permanent underclass of people who can't get access to those luxury apartments that the society loves to build. And what that does is it sends them into the arms of the only people who will rent to them, and those are slumlords. And once you've been evicted, it's a traumatic event. You will do anything to avoid that again. And the slum lords are the ones who don't maintain anything, who, who, who demand sex for rent, who are the worst of the worst. and the one of the worst parts of those slum lords, besides the fact that they are genuinely evil people, I have had I have sued slum lords who were forcing their tenants into literal slavery under threat of eviction who were demanding sex for rent under threat of eviction, who were raping kids under threat of eviction. But the worst part of it is every time the the slumlord's lawyer will be like, we're providing a public service though, because if we won't rent to them, no one else will
0: Yeah, um yeah, totally. Um Hmm. So So you think, okay, so We've been at this for an hour and 13 minutes, almost. Um, so you think basically that we're coming up on an inflection point with 40 million people um, and you're, you're up in the air as to whether or not that'll get fixed.
1: Okay. I'm not optimistic. I hope I'm wrong. But I am not optimistic. It, yeah. It, Like I said before, it's like a sequel to a bad movie. We saw last time the banks got bailed out. I don't, I I am not optimistic and I am very concerned. I'll give you an example. When people hear that I do landlord tenant stuff and I do tenant side, the very first, the, the, the most popular comment I get by far is, oh, business must be great for you right now.
0: Wow. It's, it's, to me, like it's really amazing. I may, I need to come up with different adjectives. It's it's really horrifying is a word. How how many times yes. irrespective of how you vote people end up siding with these huge businesses against their own interests. It's it's just shocking. Yes.
1: Oh absolutely. Absolutely. I am... Um... To, uh, to give you an example, I um, I so I was once giving a fair housing presentation to a group of, uh, real estate agents, and this group of real estate agents fancied itself rather progressive. I will not name it for obvious reasons, but suffice to say, it fancied itself extremely progressive, and um, well, one of the reasons I was there, and so I was, I I completed my presentation, and then one of the the realtors. Spouses came over to me and, and they were livid, absolutely livid, that one of the, the issues that I had focused on was the need for acceptance of Section 8 vouchers to be universal. And what they told me was they have no problem with equality for those people, their words, but they just don't want to live in the same town as
0: them whoa that's that's kind of wowzers um
1: as as they as this person put it i don't want them in evanston that's why they built skokie
0: and something that i because i started my podcast looking at the spanish flu um and the thing with the spanish flu that you have to bump into that you have to address other than Racism that a lot of people today just wouldn't be able to wrap their head around um, is the fact that one of the reasons why you didn't have to have lockdowns and you didn't have to whatever is because there were so many people in this country that if they weren't living on a farm, they were like one step removed from that, right? Or two steps removed from it. And it's just not... Like, we're just not set up to be this rugged individualist country who also needs to turn up to go to work. Like, In my mind, if I can be, if I can put on my political theory hat for just a second, in my mind, you either, you have to pick, you have to decide, do you want to be a rugged rugged individualist country or not? And if you want to be a rugged individualist country, if you want to abide by the little R Republican ideals that were laid out in the Constitution and da 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 da, da then you darn well had better give everybody a farm or, or make it so that they can get one, you know, somewhere that they can just go off by themselves and make their own food and trade. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah.
1: No, no you're, you're not wrong, but we are also a country that – Believes that it you are responsible for your own success building a business while using the the taxpayer funded interstate highway system. So, the the, the reality is we want to we we fancy ourselves ruggedly individualistic, but at the but the reality is we just want to well, have our I cake mean, and eat it too.
0: And I do have a political theory hat, and I have a very big political theory hat. And I think one of the big things that happened in my own adulthood was the fracturing of the Republican Party coalition around the Iraq war. I think the the suburban folks, the younger suburban folks, of which I was a part, looked at their friends who went off the war and thought, that's stupid, that's silly, let's not do that. And, I mean, I don't know. Like, I just see that my generation has basically had to rethink a lot of stuff, like, for example, renting. I mean, no, you know, I was, before the pandemic, I was reading this piece about the guy, there was a guy who owned these apartments, or they used to be apartments, then they were condos. And he said, you know, he said in 1950, nobody thought this condo would be worth a million dollars, (laughs) right? Which to me was a giant red flag.
1: You know, it, it's interesting you bring up the Iraq war. Um, so if you look at um, it, it, it's um, it, it's really fascinating to see how these, these same threads run through everything. The, the U.S. military is the largest employer of trans people in the world, not because trans people like going to war particularly more than any other group but rather because that is one of the only ways in the United States for trans people to be able to get health care and education. Um, so what we what we as a country basically have done for the last 20 years is we have sent some of the most vulnerable people in our country off to fight a war of choice for us. And then when they get back, discriminate against them, which is, of course, a very old story, as old as the country itself. But we it wasn't until earlier this year that the trans person who went off to, to war and then came back could, it it wasn't until earlier this year that it was illegal to fire them for being trans when they got back. Okay.
0: You mean fire them from the military or fire them from a a civilian job? job. I think I remember that. I think I remember that court case because
1: that was the through no fault of my year. own,
0: against my better judgment, I still keep up with the Supreme Court. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but that's that, that's kind of the, my, my point. We have, even in, the, in, in our military decisions, it's again stratified. We have an elite at the top who is making decisions, and then we essentially okay. coerce vulnerable people to go and carry out those decisions for the benefit of... Of Somebody. the elites at the top. That, that is essentially how we yeah. do it in
0: our society. Um. Okay. God. I don't know. I, one of the things, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, I do a lot of exercising and listen to a lot of podcasting in my free time. And one of the things that you learn when you listen about the French Revolution and from Mike Duncan was all the parallels between us and the French Revolution. And it's really crazy and honestly that that's i don't know like i feel like we're at this moment the whole one of the reasons i want to talk about 2020 in general is i feel like we're at this moment where things are going to change one way or the other <laughs> maybe both ways for different people you know <laughs> rome didn't fall the same way for everybody you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, Cheryl, it's been a pleasure. Um, do you have anything you want to tell the internet?
1: Uh, if you have questions about anything you heard today or want to hear sources or if you have a consumer law issue you want some help with, every case I take is sliding scale. Um, my email is Cheryl, S-H-E-R-Y-L, at CherylRingLaw.com. Sh- and you can reach me at www.sherylringlaw.com right. Hold on
0: just a second, please.